Welcome to ABI Podcast. This is Melissa Jacoby. I'm the ABI Scholar-in-Residence for 2016 spring and a professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Today's subject is a book that the ABI is publishing, Representing Creditors Committee, A Guide for Practitioners. And with me are the co-chairs of the ABI Unsecured Trade Creditors Committee, Mark Felger and Paul Haig. So Mark Felger, who is a editor of this book, is the co-chair of the Bankruptcy, Insolvency, and Reorganization Group at Cozen O'Connor and managing partner of their Wilmington, Delaware office. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Melissa. It's nice to be here. Paul Haig is a partner at Jaffe, Rate, Hewer, and Weiss in Detroit. Welcome, Paul. Welcome. Uh, thanks, Melissa. It's nice to speak with you. So let me direct my first question to Mark. So who's the audience for this book? We're, we're told it's a guide for practitioners, so that gives us a little clue. But why was the book thought to be necessary? What, what hole were you looking to fill here? Uh, sure, Melissa. The, uh, what's interesting here is this book has, uh, has been uh, in the works for a number of years. Uh, I believe it's gone back probably uh, four or five years uh, to leadership that uh, precedes uh, Paul and I. Um, about six months ago, the current leadership uh, uh, thought that uh, uh, this book needed to be published. Uh, so we uh, refocused our energies on, uh, on, on bringing it uh, uh, forward. The uh, uh, audience uh, for the book uh, are uh, the professionals who are in this space and professionals who, who would like to get into this space, uh, lawyers, financial advisors, investment bankers. Um, what we found, uh, Melissa, was that there was a void. While there are many uh, terrific articles on creditors' committees and chapters on committees, chapter 11 books, and good resources for creditors, and even a, a, a very nice uh, publication by ABI directed to committee members, uh, we felt that there wasn't uh, sort of a definitive guide for uh, the practitioner. Uh, so that's sort of the genesis of the book and uh, um, the void we were looking to fill. So right off the top, can you tell us some key takeaways from the book, some particular issues that you that might be misunderstood that you'd want to get out there right away? Uh, sure, there are certainly plenty. Uh, I'll focus on a few. I guess, first and foremost, I think there's a misunderstanding uh, in some quarters as to, as to the constituency that, a, that a, an official uh, unsecured creditors committee represents. Uh, the, uh, I think folks uh, may have an understanding that, uh, that, that the committee represents all unsecured creditors in a case. Uh, when in fact uh, the, the committee represents the holders of general unsecured claims, uh, i.e. non-priority unsecured claims. And you see this highlighted in these recent gifting cases and, uh, and situations where committees are looking to waive, uh, uh, waive preference claims against their constituencies. Also, and I would, uh, I would I, add, Mark, that also becomes a big issue dealing with the 503b9 claims, which are administrative claims, but of course they're they're given a priority administrative expense claim under the code, and so you have some interesting issues uh, there to deal with. Oh, absolutely, 
Absolutely. I'd also uh, point out that, you know, and particularly from the, the, the debtor lender community, uh, you hear uh, uh, that uh, the committees may not serve a purpose any longer, given sort of the nature of the, the cases we're, we're seeing more and more, the 363 cases and the, uh, uh, and the prepackaged plan cases. And uh, I think we would, uh, we would say to that that the committees are uh, always uh, an important constituency uh, in any Chapter 11 case, uh, if for no other reason to make sure that uh, the process uh, has integrity and the voice of the unsecured creditor, uh, creditor body is, is, is heard. Now, you have a chapter on the role of the committee setting the stage, I think, for some of introducing really what the committee is doing. And one of the things it discusses is protocols for disseminating information to creditors. And this has been a pretty sensitive issue over time. Can you can you talk a little bit about why it's so sensitive and how that's impacting committee membership? Sure, Melissa. The uh, what you're referring to is the uh, the change to the code uh, in the uh, part of BAPSEBA in 2005 to add uh, Section 1102B3 to the code, which uh, requires the committee to provide access to information for its constituency and to solicit and receive comments from creditors. And uh, when this uh, was promulgated, uh, it, it, it sent some shockwaves through the uh, uh, sort of the committee uh, community in, in terms of trying to figure out what was meant and what was intended by this change to the code. And uh, what we've seen uh, evolve uh, over the years is a, uh, is a protocol, and I, I believe it was the Revco case uh, that uh, was one of the, if, if not the first, one of the first cases where this uh, issue came to the fore, and a and a uh, protocol was set up to uh, to address the concerns of the committee members and committee professionals in terms of trying to trying to f fix some guidance uh, in terms of information uh, needed to be provided, how often it needed to be provided. Um, and, and what was in, uh, meant and intended by soliciting and receiving comments from creditors. And the concerns here were, were uh, confidentiality concerns in terms of the information that was being provided to the committee uh, by the debtor and the debtor's professionals, uh, and, and privilege uh, concerns as well. Uh, certainly didn't want to uh, cause any issues that would break the attorney-client uh, privilege. Uh, so a uh, detailed protocol was established in that case uh, that set out uh, exactly what uh, the committee needed to do, uh, including uh, setting up a website uh, so that creditors could, uh, could access a website and get updates uh, on uh, what was happening in the case. Uh, in some cases, uh, smaller cases, we've seen committees share websites with debtors, but, uh, um, you know, that's uh, one of the uh, hallmarks of that, uh, that protocol. So and I think, Mark, if I can just add, you know, in, in some cases, 
it, it is it is proportional, I think, uh, appropriately uh, to uh, the size of the case and uh, the size of the committee's uh, constituency. Um, there are, uh, in the larger cases, websites are frequently used, but uh, in in smaller cases, obviously that that doesn't make sense. And so there are there are other ways uh, of communicating with with the creditors. And the key is, are you responsive to requests and providing sufficient information for them to know what's going on in the case. It's a, but I think it's a flexible standard, don't you? Yes, I, I agree with all of what you've just said. Uh, but it does uh, uh, provide some certainty and, and, and clarity uh, for a committee in terms of uh, um, uh, fulfilling its uh, obligation under this uh, this new code section. So so, Paul, you worked on a chapter on negotiations with secured lenders. I think that's Chapter 4. So this is something already alluded to in our discussion and certainly very much on the table in all uh, contemporary discussions of Chapter 11. So we have these challenges associated with companies coming into bankruptcy so heavily leveraged. So can you just introduce us to what the impact on the role of committee and its counsel is in that in light of that situation. Sure, sure. I mean, that's the case that we see most of the time today, and it's it's the fun part of representing a committee is is figuring out how to deal with this problem. Uh, and that is, as you noted, the companies are always uh, highly leveraged, and uh, the case is always purportedly a melting ice cube. It seems, and so um, you have these. Uh, dual challenges when you represent the unsecured creditors of being quite a ways down on the uh, priority level. You know, oftentimes there's going to be multiple tiers of debt, and this is results of the emergence of hedge funds and private equity groups, other types of lenders that are out there. Um, and you have this, this challenge that Chapter 11 cases, um, now they're all about acquisition and leverage and speed. Um, so you have to overcome the fact that you're below a number of secured creditors in many cases at the very start. Uh, much of the deal has already been made before you're even brought to the table. And because every case is purportedly a melting ice cube, you have this need uh, for speed um, to try and overcome. And, uh, of course, the, the most common example of this that we see is, is uh, a case that's filed and there's a... Uh, very early on in the case, it's a motion for a, for a sale, a 363 sale. And either, you know, the lenders are oftentimes driving this process, either uh, looking for a sale to a third party, a stocking horse bidder to, to get themselves out of uh, the credit, or uh, other, oftentimes uh, the secured creditor is looking to acquire the company itself as part of a loan-to-own strategy. And uh, unfortunately for the committee, uh, the purchase price in these cases uh, it is not uncommon, is just enough to pay the secured creditors, leaving nothing on the table for the unsecured creditors. And so what this chapter talks about is, well, how do you t attack all of this? And, and really what you're talking about is, how do you attack uh, the cash collateral motion, uh, which often has all kinds of provisions that we can talk about that are favorable to the lenders and potentially harmful to unsecured creditors. Uh, the dip financing motion, which has many of these same types of provisions, and in a sale case, which is sort of the majority of the Chapter 11 cases we're seeing now, 
Uh, sometimes that involves attacking the sale process itself. And the committee's role, um, uh, while some might say that the committee plays less of a role in these types of cases because with all the secured debt, these reorganizations or sales are really about dealing with secured debt, uh, I would argue that the committee's role is all the more important in these types of cases for two reasons. The first is the debtor often doesn't have the leverage with in dealing with the secured creditors to push back on some of the things that are there uh, in these in these motions and orders. Uh, and so it's the committee who is sort of tasked with, with taking up some of these issues. Uh, and the second reason is I think the courts now are looking to the committee to to be to play a bit of a watchdog role and make sure that what is going on is fair and that the purposes of bankruptcy, namely maximizing the value for the benefit of all creditors, not just the secured creditors, to make sure that is uh, that occurs. So the job of the committee in these cases is to slow the train, uh, to object to provisions in the cash collateral or the financing motion, uh, which attempt to steer assets or claims away from the unsecured creditors. Certainly to review and, if appropriate, challenge the claims and liens of the secured creditors, and oftentimes this is looking for lender misconduct or, or, or more often probably just to see if they properly perfected, if the secured creditor actually did dot its size and cross its T's so that it, it really is, is properly perfected. Um, and, of course, in the sale process, it's, it's trying to bring uh, other, other buyers to the table um, to try and create a competitive process and, and generate more value. But uh, in terms of uh, negotiations with the secured lenders, we have a chapter here, Chapter 4, Melissa, that you referenced, and that really focuses on the two main lender motions. That's the cash collateral motion in order and the dip financing motion in order in cases where there's dip financing. And uh, again, I think there's great deference given to or um, there's, there's a... Uh, the role of the committee in these types of cases is to scrutinize uh, these motions uh, within the tight time frame and, and see if there are things that uh, should be removed. And I think the courts do, do look to the committee to, to perform that role. How, do, how does committee counsel deal with the problem of lending proposals or even onerous terms in cash collateral, proposed cash collateral orders, being presented on sort of as a take it or leave it that we are we are the only game in town this is what we want we want the sale quickly and we will lend only to this day and only under these terms how do you deal with the question of when to push back when that's a real a legitimate concern it's a challenge and it's a delicate balancing act in each case uh, to be sure but uh, i think if you can find provisions in these orders or proposed orders uh, that are unfair, um, you can raise these issues. And the judges are, are generally going to be looking to make sure that there's a fair process. And the thinking, I think, is it's sort of along the lines of paying the freight to be in bankruptcy. There's a lot of bank benefits for, for debtors and secured creditors and uh, purchasers to be in a, in a bankruptcy case and get the blessings of the court orders, but there's a cost to that. And so... You have to look at each in each case and say, you know, are, are these provisions overreaching? Are they unfair? Um, are there claims that should be pursued here? Uh, you might pursue those claims in some cases. You might uh, not in others. It does depend, certainly, if there's anybody else who's 
willing to lend if financing is available on any other terms. Uh, but there are certain things that I think, uh, and I, I suspect Mark agrees, there are certain things that uh, in every case it is just expected um, that there's going to be some negotiation. Uh, there's going to be some pushback on certain provisions in the in the proposed orders that, that is going to come from the committee. The judges uh, are uh, expecting, I think, that uh, the committee and the uh, debtor and the secured creditor, creditor are going to negotiate over these provisions and come to something uh, that makes sense. And, and by that, I mean, you know, certainly there's, there's generally a budget that is, that is put forth, uh, and that budget needs to be reviewed and in some cases attacked by the committee uh, to make sure that, you know, there are sufficient professional fees for the committee to do its uh, performance fiduciary duties. Uh, there is always this issue of reviewing and challenging the liens. I touched on this earlier of the secured creditors. Uh, relevant to that is, well, the committee needs to have funds and time to do that. And oftentimes these orders try and restrict that in both, in both respects, both in terms of timing and financing available to fund that process. And so uh, that's a common objection. The committee's job is going to be uh, there to review the adequate protection uh, that is offered uh, to the secured creditor, uh, if any, to make sure it's not uh, overreaching. And, and you have other issues, making sure that the Chapter 5 causes of actions aren't encumbered. Uh, surcharge, waiver of surcharge under 506C is often a provision that's in there. And so it's the committee's job to sort of look into uh, these types of provisions in the orders and make the decision, is it reasonable in this case? And if not, to bring that issue to the court's attention and hopefully get those uh, provisions changed. And so what we did in this chapter is we talked about many of these types of issues that come up, uh, identified some of the important case law that, that is relevant in this scenario that uh, can hopefully be useful to somebody in a representing a creditors committee and in attacking those provisions of the of the financing and cash letter orders that they perceive to be unfair. Well, and I do think that uh, chapter four as a as a reader is a g great review of all of these challenges, even if someone isn't representing a creditors committee, so uh, I found a very useful discussion on that on that level. I suppose um, if you're on the other side, if you're representing the lender, you know it's a good overview of what you can expect to get, uh, to to be dealing with. You know, type of objections absolutely. that are common. But I do think there's an expectation that these things get negotiated in most cases. It's uh, having having represented lenders also. We you know we sometimes we put these provisions in there, but. Um, there always does seem to be that negotiation that that takes place, and the question is, in each case, what's reasonable, and and that's that's a fact-specific uh, negotiated uh, result. So, Mark, Paul has set forth, uh, adding to to your earlier commentary, sort of the the governance balance that the bankruptcy code contemplates for Chapter 11 to work, and yet we often hear that that there's a problem getting committees formed in the smaller cases, perhaps especially when the case is so, or the company is so overloaded with, with secured debt, um, compounding the problem where you most need that counterbalance, it's hard to get. So how, how do you overcome that challenge? Do you have thoughts on how to ensure committees are appointed in as many cases as possible in Chapter 11? The... Uh it's interesting. The, I, I think there's a few things uh, in play here. I mean, one is uh, obviously when creditors have have uh, not much uh, skin in the game, uh, it is uh, difficult to uh, uh, 
for them to see their way clear to getting involved in serving on a creditors committee where they take on a fiduciary duty and have to commit uh, the resources of some of their personnel to attending meetings um, in a case that could go on for a long time um, with uh, the prospects of a very small recovery at the end of the day on a claim that's otherwise uh, not a material claim for uh, the company. Um, but with that said, I, you know, I've, I've been involved in, in, in cases all over the country and, and what I see is uh, an inconsistency in approach uh, to forming committees uh, by the Office of the United States Trustee. Uh, in, in Delaware, uh, the office is, uh, um, I would say, quite aggressive in uh, setting up formation meetings within a week to 10 days of a first day hearing and uh, is very active in uh, communicating with, uh, with the top creditors and uh, having an in-person meeting and uh, and trying to form committees in as many cases uh, as they can, large or small. Um, and I believe New York has a similar uh, uh, style or approach to forming committees. But uh, uh, in many other districts around the country, uh, you don't have uh, that sort of active, uh, aggressive uh, approach by the Office of the United States Trustee. In fact, in many districts, uh, you have uh, an approach where the, the office uh, will not uh, reach out to creditors, uh, but rather waits for creditors to reach out for, uh, uh, for a committee uh, to them. I've, I've seen that in a number of districts where I've represented a large creditor in a case and had to contact the U.S. trustee and prompt the U.S. trustee to, uh, uh, to move to uh, appoint uh, a creditors committee. So, I mean, I would think that trying to establish a consistent approach uh, from district to district uh, with the Office of the United States trustee uh, to, uh, to form committees in every case uh, and to have a sort of a set uh, approach to doing that, um, to reaching out to the top 20 creditors, um, educating the creditors on, on, on what it means to serve on a committee so that they understand um, uh, what it would entail and that it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a great deal of time devoted to the process. Um, and, it, and, and that the risk of liability uh, is, is generally quite de minimis. Um, and also set up a procedure that is user-friendly. Um, I know uh, there's been some criticism to uh, the approach that Delaware takes and others take that uh, um, has an in-person meeting uh, where folks need to incur the cost of flying in uh, for a meeting in order to uh, get appointed to a uh, creditors committee uh, and perhaps an approach where uh, folks can dial in um, or have a video access uh, that might uh, be helpful in, uh, in, in uh, um, persuading, coaxing, conjoling creditors to uh, serve on more uh, 
uh, on, on more committees. So I, I think having a, a, a more um, user-friendly approach um, and consistent approach by the Office of the United States Trustee around the country could go a long way to seeing more, uh, more committees getting formed in these cases. So, Paul, let me just ask you, are, in the range of cases you're involved with, are you seeing that same diversity of approaches of the U.S. trustee? Uh, I do. Yeah, I think um, even just within the state of, and I practice in Michigan, within the state of Michigan, the, the committee formation process in the Eastern District of Michigan and the Western District of Michigan um, is very different. So there are, I think there are different approaches uh, all around the country, and, and of course that's an important thing to understand if you're looking to get involved in a bankruptcy case that's, uh, you know, in a different, uh, different uh, venue. Yeah, I would I would just add I won't I won't mention the district, but I had a case a few years ago where I had the largest unsecured creditor, and a, a couple of weeks went by and we hadn't heard anything regarding a formation meeting. So I spoke with the uh, representative at the office of the United States trustee in this district, and he told me that they don't, as a general rule, appoint committees. Um, and in fact, he said to me that they had never appointed a committee. Um, um, but they were open to doing that if my client wanted to sort of take the laboring oar of, um, of co uh, coordinating a call uh, among the largest creditors, which we ended up doing um, and ended up having a committee formed. But that's just one example of a district uh, where uh, the U.S. trustee uh, had that sort of I guess, passive approach to forming creditors committees. Wow. That is, that adds to the, the spectrum of approaches for sure to not do it at all. So it, speaking of committees, it seems like it took a, a bit of a village to, to write this book. It was a committee approach. Um, you have an array of great authors who worked on this book. So Mark, do you want to identify for our listeners, the, the range of authors or law firms that were involved? Sure. Be happy to, uh, it, it really uh, is uh, a, a great uh, group of folks, uh, an eclectic group of folks involved in, in this book. Uh, we have, uh, of course, uh, Paul's firm. Uh, it's based in, uh, in Michigan. You have uh, my firm, Cozen, based in Philadelphia. I sit in Delaware. Uh, Claire Harrison is a Philadelphia-based firm with offices in Delaware. You have Pachulski. Uh, is based in California, but has a Delaware office. Godfrey Kahn, uh, based in Green, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Christian and Barton in Richmond, Virginia. Aaron Fox in New York. Lowenstein Sandler in New Jersey. Pepper Hamilton uh, in Philadelphia and Detroit, and also in Delaware. And, and Ballard Spar in uh, uh, Branson, New York, uh, but they're based in uh, Philadelphia. So if you look at... Uh, all of these firms we cover, it looks like we cover eight states, and uh, I'm doing it right, it looks like we have five circuits covered as well. So it is uh, quite an eclectic group, uh, which I think adds to uh, the value of the book because you're, you're not getting just Paul's perspective and, and my perspective, uh, you're getting the perspectives of uh, literally dozens of lawyers who've been involved in, in crafting uh, this book. And uh, 
I always find the more the more perspectives you have on something, uh, the more value uh, you're going to find. Um, I've represented a lot of creditors committees over the years on a lead basis and a local basis. And I have to say that, uh, that, that the cases where I've been local counsel working with other uh, experienced uh, committee counsel, uh, those cases have been quite valuable in uh, helping sort of uh, uh, have me develop my approach to cases uh, because I've been able to see how other uh, law firms uh, experienced in representing committees uh, will strategize a case. And so um, I think our book is, uh, uh, with all of those various perspectives, uh, will be uh, uh, quite a valuable addition uh, to the bookshelves of, of folks who uh, represent committees and uh, perhaps are looking to get into this space. So before we close, I want to give each of you a chance to raise anything in this area that the book talks about that I haven't directly asked you about. Um, Paul, let me go to you first. Sure. Well, I would echo what, what Mark just said, and really it's a tremendous uh, effort by a lot of people to get this book uh, across the finish line, particularly Mark. Um, and in terms of the book itself, I mean, my you know, it, it's an unusual thing. If you if you just write one chapter of a book and you see the finished process, progress, the finished project, excuse me, um, it's impressive to see the scope of this book. I mean, this this book starts, it's really from the beginning to the end of the committee process. It talks about uh, the role of the committee generally, the, the process of appointing and, and, uh, and determining the composition of the committee, the process for retaining professionals, the investigation that the committee always takes early in the case, whether it be at the 341 meeting or by way of a 2004 examination. Uh, chapter 4, which we've already talked about, talks about the, the battle over cash collateral and debt financing. Um, there's uh, an extensive discussion in here on uh, dealing with the sale process, on plan negotiations, on the confirmation requirements for a plan, uh, and post-confirmation issues, because, of course, much of the work for the benefit of unsecured creditors is often done after confirmation in terms of reserving claims, preserving uh, claims and causes of action, and uh, pursuing them often, oftentimes through some type of a liquidation or litigation trust, uh, pursuing the preferences and fraudulent transfer action claims, insider causes of action, collecting unreceivables, things like that. Um, so the book, I mean, the scope of the book is impressive, and I think it's uh, it would be a nice addition to uh, anybody's bookshelf who practices in this space. So I hope people enjoy it. And Mark, any last words? <laughs> Famous last words, yes. Uh, <laughs> I guess I, I guess I would just say that you know I've heard uh, in, in my experience folks uh, saying that that committee representation is uh, easy stuff. You come in, you rattle your saber, you get your nickel. Um, but I think what what this book uh, uh, points out is uh, sort of the complexity uh, and difficulty of uh, representing creditors committees. Because uh, uh, generally, uh, you're getting involved in a case uh, where deadlines are set, as Paul indicated earlier, 
the, the train has left the station or is about to leave the station and the professionals for the committee need to get in and get up to speed in an incredibly uh, shortened uh, time frame to understand uh, what's in the best interest of creditors in a matter of days and weeks is not an easy undertaking. And uh, uh, so we've, uh, we've tried to lay all that out and, uh, and identify the issues uh, for the practitioner. And, 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 and hopefully we've, uh, we've been able to meet our objectives. So that's a great place to end. I want to thank Mark Felger and Paula Haig for joining us today. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I'm also grateful to have gotten a sneak peek at the manuscript of this book uh, before this podcast, and I'm looking forward to it being on my shelf as well. So uh, thanks to the listeners, and I will be talking to you again soon. (laughs) 